This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Diani. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you in. It's great to be in again. You've taken your glasses off, so I'm a bit more blurry. That's right. It's a nice Vaseline lens effect. <laughs> you <can't. laughs> Dr. Cromo. No Vaseline with me this morning. <laughs> yeah, no, you're just, you're just straight up now, <laughs> El Natural. Yes, I'm glad to be here as well on this frosty morning. It is. You know, it's funny. Um, a lot of people this morning have been saying to me, you know, is it cold? Are you cold? And I went shopping, did my supermarket shopping. Are you cold? Do you find it cold? It's very cold. But I was at Lake Mountain on Friday. Ah, I saw so, a picture of snow somewhere. Actually, balmy today here wow. in Melbourne. <laughs> by comparison. I'm just always thankful on a day like today that it isn't windy as well. Oh yeah, you know, because yeah. when it, when it hits <clears> August <throat> and you've got the the, the wind whipping around, oh, oh. Well, it was very interesting actually up at Lake Mountain because it was still it was beautiful. But um, it's the first time I've been to Marysville since um, the 2009 bushfire, and I'd been to Marysville probably six or seven times prior to that. Spent a lot of time in Marysville, and it was like going to a town that I'd never visited before. Um, because it, well, it's just a different town. It is, isn't it? The, the only yeah. thing I recognised was the bakery on the corner, which um, I, I have to say I did go in, and yes, I did get an English tart because they're the best ones in the world. I just can't. I, can't <laughs> I went to back. the same. I went to the same bakery. Oh. Did you go to the museum where it shows uh, the museum? It's just so sad mm. Mm. Um, to see that museum, but it's so good to see the kind of sprouting the the um, yeah sprout the the town sprouting from the ashes. It is. It's it's coming up, and it's interesting and. And there's there's a lot of people still there, which is great, and it's growing. And um, there's a great crystal garden there, folks. If you ever are up Marysville Way, there's this crystal garden, and there's a, a rock geology shop oh. attached to it. And for me, you know, this is like I, I, I went in under the pretense of the kids will love this. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to get in there. But there was a, a, a sort of older gentleman there who um, has been there the whole time. And, and I'm very funny. I don't like asking them about the fires because, you know, it's been six years, and every idiot who walks in, mm. you know, geez, this has changed since the fight. There must be sick of it by now but this guy gave me so much history and so forth about what had happened and you know with the various trees what the, what happens to them at certain temperatures wow. you know with them just literally exploding and breaking apart so they die you know they don't mm. regrow they just die and there's a lot of that up there um it was great it was really really good so it was good to see that so inc- incredible area of the world though really yes, it is. beautiful isn't it well well yeah. worth going and there's, oh, there's yeah. all kind of places to stay up there too yeah all i need is a fern and a road to get me there that's all I. You know. <laughs> so. now let's get into some science dr diani what do you got for us well, I've got a story which is uh, about the power of positivity. So it sounds a bit airy-fairy, but... Uh, Hello. So <laughs> <laughs> Folks, uh, just a bit of context. This is coming from a new mum who's had about 30 minutes sleep since yesterday. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, so as many people will know, the... The practice of psychotherapy is very strongly based on the notion that our memories, and especially those that are emotionally charged or formed in emotionally charged situations, really can influence our behaviour and our mental health. But Mm. the question is, is there some sort of biological basis for it? And I guess, can we manipulate that in some way to treat people with with things like depression and anxiety? And uh, so... uh, a study that was out this week kind of had a look at this question in mice. So it's, you know, it's, it's a way off from, you know, psychotherapy in humans, obviously. But what they did was they, they looked at mice uh, and they, they were able to tag a part of their brain in a very specific way. So a particular region of the brain called the dentate gyrus, which is 
um, a sub region of the hippocampus, which is known to be involved in memory formation, they mm-hmm. were able to uh, tag cells at the moment that they were forming a memory with these light-sensitive proteins. So memories formed, cells get tagged, and then the scientists are able to use then a pulse of blue light to reactivate these cells at a later time period. Right. And so it's effectively like triggering those mice to remember that experience. Oh. Um, and so this is... this. Uh, yeah, optogenetics, and it's like a huge thing in uh, memory study. Um, but anyway, so what they did, they got some male mice and they gave them a positive experience. They exposed them to a cage with female mice in there, or with a female mouse. They thought, this is fantastic. They triggered the, um, these cells to form um, so that then the researchers could, at a later time, you know, trigger this memory of being in a, with a female mouse. But between those two time points, they stressed the mice out. For 10 days, they induced a depressed state. So they had, you know, happy experience, make the mice depressed, and then they re-triggered um, the happy memory. And what they found was that the mice were no longer depressed. Mm. Um, so that's quite a big even thing. Though, even though they didn't experience something new. Now, this is the interesting thing. They didn't experience something new. And, in fact, when they did try just taking these depressed mice and giving them a new experience, a new positive experience, put them in a new cage with a female mouse, that did not have the same effect as actually just recalling the experience of having been with the female mice. So it's kind of interesting. It's obviously very early work. It's only in mice. And, you know, I guess we still have to... um, yeah, there's still oodles of work to go um, to to even imagine whether um, you know just positive recollections will work. Mm. Was it what was that film called? Was it Brainstorm? We John Hurt, William Hurt, William Hurt, where they recorded the emotions and then they could play them back in another person. And there's a scene where they oh, actually record no. they record a guy actually having a heart attack and dying. And the whole point was that they could then experience. It's nineteen late nineteen seventies, early eighties. Yeah. I think it was called Brainstorm. Um, Wim hurt. Mm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry. They've yeah, finally yeah, done well. it. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what they did. Yeah, they they were able to stimulate the the memories artificially mm. um, in other people. Right, you talk, Kramer. I'll look it up. Well, <laughs> I just got to say, um, those list, those who, those that I spoke to, listen to this show, listen to most of the shows on a Sunday morning, and most of those people will have tuned in, will find Diani's story very uh, to to ring a bell because um, as I was driving in this morning, there's a great uh, speaker on a great guest. Um, on uh, radiotherapy, who spoke about the power of three things. One, uh, gratitude, two, empathy, and three, mindfulness. So an individual, if, and he specifically, I mean, he works with footballers, with schools, and basically uh, part of this is just thinking good things, thinking about gratitude, thinking about the positive things in life, and how it could improve mental health. Um, and I think that's quite an important th- this, uh, this also shows that to find out the physiology, the genetics behind these, is good to back up these stories to get some truth behind it. Mm. So uh, my memory's not what it once was because <laughs> it was yes. Christopher Walken. <laughs> yeah, brain, Brainstorm, 983, Christopher Walken and the amazing Natalie Wood and Louise Fletcher. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. 
I was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something. Hello to all the people over 40. I was probably watching Play School, I guess. Oh, really? Dr. Kramer. I was watching the original Star Wars and looking forward to the the next one anyway. So, first of all, talking of Triple R, great shows on Triple R, this next, this news item was basically reminded me of the breakfasters, or specifically the fake fasters, because there's a specific diet that's been called the fake faster diet. Oh, really? And basically, again, going this. Basically, is a test of a certain diet. Now, most diets are silly and stupid. Some are evidence-based. This is one of the very few that seems to be evidence-based. It's basically, the, to start at the end of the story, the, the recommendation, it's like the 5-2 diet in a way. It's to cut down what you eat to a third or a half, just a third or a half, um, four or five times a month. That's not... A lot, is it? It's not a lot. So, working, so going straight back to the beginning, they started on yeast, right? They and, and people ask why? Why yeast? Well, they they starved yeast because they we can manipulate yeast. We know exactly what we can feed these little um, bodies, as it were, literally. Um, and they they periodically fasted yeast and found that, that believe it or not, yeast do have a stress response. Their stress response improved, and they lived longer. So hmm. then they go, okay, this is yeast, fine enough, let's have a look at mice. So they looked at mice. They found that the number proportion of stem cells in mice increased after this intermittent fasting, not, not starving, just a quarter to a, to a, to a half. Their rates of cancer decreased, infl- inflammatory disorders uh, decreased. And then they go, right, now it's time for humans. Now, if it was a medical drug intervention, they'd have to do loads more things. But mm-hmm. is it something as simple as, as intermittent fasting? Let's try it on humans. So they got similar results in humans. This is only one trial, one study published in a top journal, in a, in a cell journal. And they found that, again, the markers of regeneration, cellular regeneration increased. Markers of inflammation, diabetes, cardiovascular degree, uh, d- uh, disease decreased. And I think this diet was continued for three months. I don't know at all whether the, they recommended um, uh, or tried it longer than that or whether the effects were just for that three months. But it agrees with other research that says that intermittent fasting, whether it's um, two days in a week eating those uh, a third to a half or whether it's any other time just not not i repeat crash dieting mm. just eating a little less every now and again seems to improve a whole set of human outcomes now no one sat down and reviewed all these studies and reviewed all these studies it just looks interesting so i guess it's a case of watch this space and no one spoke to the uh, partners and families who had the cranky <laughs> pants to live with for the, <laughs> for the fasting days <laughs> well i remember years back and this could be a total myth um someone said to me that a common japanese these diet was to uh, eat until you were 70 80 percent full and the 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 understanding around that was that you work out that you're full about half an hour after you're actually full Uh and so you know you should sort of just reduce a bit and it's very similar and i have to say i've been doing that you know for quite a few years now especially with big heavy meals you know where you know you know the lamb roast you can really jam it in and just having a smaller serve and finding it's you know i'm hungry two hours later but um i just find a bit better 
cutting down to 20, 25% of what you eat each day, I think that'd be quite a tough a tough thing for, for most people. Mm. Like, oh, I, yeah. I, I know that yeah. I... I would uh, probably struggle. <laughs> I've been I've been on the five two diet for about six months. Uh, I'm probably at the moment on about a third to a half uh, on those two days. I started on a quarter and said I want exactly a quarter, mm. but I think it's the it's it's almost the thought that counts. Mm. But uh, but it doesn't need, you don't really need to go always down to a quarter, and it's not not too hard. Plus, there's general dietary advice that I'll I'll probably be mentioning in a, at the end of the show that is general sensible. Mm. advice to follow to uh to improve your health in general i think if if it's something feels like a fad and comes up and is popular like a fad it's probably worth avoiding it yep um because those things usually go out of fashion almost as quickly as they come in so Mm. now uh just quickly guys i wanted to mention that there's some very new research that's come out um from the max planck's planck institute um for uh their uh, Centre there for solar system research by a guy named Eugene Shelligan, who's been looking at some of the data from the European Space Agency's Venus Express probe. So this is one of the probes that just orbits around Venus, and the the orbits um, in question here are the ones between the years 2006 and 2014. So quite a period of eight years. And one of the things that we would love to be able to do is see what the surface of Venus looks like and, you know, and so wow. forth. But it is so thickly in, entrenched in cloud that normal optical sort of imaging can't get through that. So it just looks cloudy. And there's only a few ways to do it. One is through sort of thermal imaging which is one of the things that this particular spacecraft has. So you can look at the sort of the heat that's coming up through the clouds to some degree. But even that is um, the resolution's about 50 kilometres. So, for example, if you had that probe fly over Melbourne, you might see that there's something a bit warmer there, but you wouldn't see any of the detail of what's what in Melbourne or what's hot and what's not. Now, the interesting thing is, though, is in looking at this data, um, one of the things they've managed to see is some relatively short-lived hotspots that sort of seem to come over a few days, weeks, and then they, they go. And what these basically have been put down to is lava flows. So the idea that there is some actual active volcanism right now on Venus, and you know, it's hard to tell you know is it there is it not when you can't see it but there is nothing else that would produce this level of heat enough to get through this layer and be able to see these hotspots and some of the maps which folks if you want to have a look at these you can look them up um just look up venus um lava lakes spotted on venus and you'll see some of these heat maps and when you actually see these heat maps you know they're not the best resolution in the world but it's hard to not imagine it being a you know, breach in the surface and the lava flow coming out of it because so it looks actually, exactly like that. So does that actually tell us more about not only the surface of Venus but also what's beneath the surface? Yeah, did, we, it, did we know a lot of that already? Not, not really. So, I mean, this comes down to, you know, what you need to have these sorts of processes. And on Earth, of course, you need tectonic plates. And so this means that there must be some sort of subsurface structure that's causing these these changes over time. And it also means that there is, well, you know, we, we look for cycles in planets. Mm. Like, you know, we have a carbon cycle on Earth. And so when you have this sort of r- movement of material from subsurface layers to, to the atmosphere, then you start looking for cycles. So it's very interesting. I think until we, we get a probe through the cloud layer and actually start having a look on the surface, we won't know for sure. But this is pretty firm evidence 
evidence of you know lava flows at the moment on Venus, which mm. is kind of cool stuff because we yeah. we don't know that much about Venus actually. Yeah. So to quote the song Venus, baby, she's got it. <laughs> we, so which other baby? Which other babies? Which other planets? Shane have volcanoes apart from Earth and Venus? Europa. Moon of Jupiter. Oh wow! A moon um, has yeah, volcanoes. In fact, in fact more more moons than than planets because all of the other planets are, are gaseous, of course, um, except for Mars. Um, there oh, and Pluto. Do we count that as a planet? Yeah, we do. Um, we we <laughs> sure do in about do. four weeks. Um, but mainly and, and predominantly, we have a situation where some of the more interesting moons, like Europa and Ganymede, and some of the other moons of Jupiter and Saturn, um, have very unusual activity, partly because of their, the gravitational interactions, the magnetic mm-hmm. field interactions of the, the large planetary systems they, they sit in. And so they're the ones where the real... I mean, people of... NASA has taken pictures of volcanic um, eruptions and so forth from some of these moons like in real time so they're they're very active but um but venus has always been cloaked you know you can't see much so it's exciting Mm -hmm. to see this sort of stuff we're learning more and more and uh, folks i promised you i'd mention pluto which i have now every week (laughs) until until the flyby occurs in uh, just a few weeks time so it's pretty exciting uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment. We're going to be talking uh, with a researcher from ANU about frogs, which uh, some are in the decline, but some are not, which is an interesting area of research. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo on 3RRR. Now, we do have a guest on the phone today. It's Benjamin, Sh- Benjamin Scheel. Uh, ben is part of the ARC Centre for Excellence for Environmental Decisions, SEED, and the Australian National University. Ben, can you hear me? Yes, how are you going? Good, Ben. Now, you work in the area of, um, of frogs in, in general, and, and you're looking at a lot of the Australian frogs and how they're faring in, with all these changes and so forth that are, that are going on. And some of the really interesting stuff you've been looking at is around this particular African fungus, which has started attacking uh, many of the frogs around the world. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of what's happening with that fungus and what it does? Yeah, definitely. So starting in the beginning, in the earliest records for the chytrid fungus in Australia is from 1978, and that's near Brisbane. And it was introduced, like you said, probably from the African clawed frog, which was used for pregnancy testing in humans. Yep. And it subsequently spread north and south and impacted very severely about 40 species of Australian frogs over the last three decades. Okay. When you say um, pregnancy test, how, how exactly do you use a frog for a pregnancy test? Well, it's an outdated method. They don't use it now. But what they used to do at beginning in about the 1950s and right up until the 70s was expose a urine sample from a lady to the frog and whether or not the frog ovulated a female frog, it would be able to it would react to the hormones in the urine and then that would give quite a reliable insight into whether or not the lady was pregnant. So presumably that means that this frog that is potentially the carrier of this fungus would have been shipped all around the world, is that right? Yes, and so it's still very complex and it's an evolving area of research. We're not quite sure of the exact origin of the fungus, but the spread of the African cord fog for pregnancy testing provides a very likely explanation for how the fungus was spread right around the world. So it's also affected frogs badly in Central America and mm-hmm. North America and also Europe. Now, what does the, um, the fungus actually do to the frog in this case? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it must actually kill them off. Yes, so it's quite a 
quite a horrible way to go as well, actually. So frogs have keratin within their skin, mm-hmm. and this particular chytrid fungus, it essentially eats the keratin within the frog's skin, and that disrupts the capacity of the frog skin to function. So frogs can breathe through their skin, so their skin's quite important, very important for them. And they end up dying after being infected for several weeks from symptoms that are very similar to a heart attack. Okay. And in terms of transmission from one frog to another, how does that actually occur with this fungus? Is it a contact scenario or does it just get in the waterways and so forth and transmit simply? So there's, there's two ways, and like you said, you said both of them. One is contact between frogs, and then the fungus also has a free-living stage that's independent of the frog, and that's within water. So if a frog jumps in a pond or a small stream, there can be what we call zoospores, which are the infectious stage of the fungus, and then they'll make contact with the frog and then start to infect the frog. Mm. Now, let's talk about Australian frogs. What's happening in terms of our particular species here? Because my understanding from the information you sent through is not all of them are affected in the same way by this fungus. Yeah, so luckily a lot of species don't really show any effect from it. So there's still a lot of frog species that are very common. So I guess that's the first bit of key information is that all different species have different responses to the fungus. So of the species that were affected, and it's about 40 that have been affected in Australia, that that means they've had a serious decline. There's some species that are still ongoing decliners, and so that's one group of species we looked at. But a really good piece of news is that some species that declined in the 1980s are actually starting to recover quite strongly now. Okay. Does does that mean they've they've sort of built up some sort of immunity to this fungus, or are they just, or is it just the numbers sort of winning out? I think the fungus is still very common. So the research that we did in the Snowy Mountains and down into the Victorian high country as well as the area around Canberra found that in these frog populations that are recovering, the fungus is still very common and it still results in a high level of mortality from the frogs. So it doesn't indicate to us that there's been a strong immune response. And what we found was that the fungus is quite rare in tadpoles and young frogs, but it's very common in adult frogs. Okay. And so what we think happens is that adult frogs come into a wetland habitat where they get the fungus and they contact other frogs that might be infected that are resistant species, or they hop in the water and they get infected. And then they subsequently breed. They also get infected at the same time. But because the new life stage, which is the tadpole, isn't affected by the fungus, they're able to successfully reproduce before they succumb to the disease. Okay. Um Hi Ben, Dr Crummer here. I have a question for you. The question is, how can we help? Now I'm a frustrated frog photographer. I'd love to, I'd love to listen to the sounds of them, but always try to creep up on them, but can never see them. What I love to do is to to be there to to know how to take a photo of a frog or to record the sound and to kind of contribute towards knowledge of frogs in my local area. How how does our how do our audience get on board? In Melbourne, probably the best way to get involved is there's a program called Frog Census, which is run by Melbourne Water, and Mm. that allows community members to go out and make a recording with their smartphone or another device, which they can also identify the frog species that they hear, but it's also checked by a coordinator. So that's a really valuable contribution because the citizens can collect a lot of really useful information and it's also able to be quality controlled so it's very useful from a scientific perspective as well Mm. Ben you mentioned that uh, some of the frogs happen to get to uh, reproductive age earlier than you know the than it takes for the fungus to kill them does this mean that 
I guess we're ending up with um, an ecology around the world where we've got some frogs surviving just by virtue of having a faster life cycle than others. And, and I mean, th- th- surely this must have knock-on effects um, with, with the ecology that they're living in. I mean, are frogs particularly important in some ecosystems? Yes, frogs are certainly really important in a lot of ecosystems. And in a lot of areas, they're one of the key base predators, uh, prey items for a lot of other species, especially larger reptiles, including a lot of snakes, but also turtles and that sort of thing. So the loss of frogs has a big impact on those species. As I mentioned earlier, the chytrid fungus actually came into Australia quite early in the late 1970s. And unfortunately, people weren't really researching frogs at that stage, or not many people were anyhow, given how big Australia is. And so we actually don't have very much data on the initial flow-on effects onto other parts of the ecosystem. But in Central America, where the fungus is more recently invaded and they were able to predict where it might occur, there's been some really interesting work done finding increased levels of algae in streams and also changes in food web structures associated with the decline of frogs. Mm. Ben, given this scenario where the life cycle is so important in keeping them going against this fungus, what does that mean in terms of the habitat, and especially in Australia where there are quite you know, rapid swings in habitats around our extreme conditions? Does that, does that mean the habitat becomes the most important aspect of the survival of some of these species? The habitat is absolutely key. So what we found was, and this was in one of the recovering species, which is the whistling tree frog, we found that sites that persisted through the sort of boom and bust cycle associated with the emergence of the fungus, they were associated with high-quality habitat. And that goes back to how we were talking about the life history of the frog. So their life cycle, when it's quick, and if they only have one shot at breeding, they've got to get it right. So as you said, Australia has a notoriously variable climate it can be very wet and very dry. And so this lack of or the quicker life cycle of the frogs means that they have to have a high-quality habitat. So that's an important thing that everyone can do and that we can do at a national level is to protect all remaining frog habitat. Mm. And just finally, Ben, uh, give us the sort of lowdown on, on where we're at in terms of our frog populations. I mean, we often hear about this being a very serious problem. Sounds like some of them are doing okay. What What's the overall picture for Australia at the moment? The overall picture, I think, of species that were affected by the fungus, you have a group of species that's recovering, which is great news. You have a group of species that had very major declines and they're just persisting in a very small number of remnant populations for each species. So we need to know more about those species and we need to potentially actively manage those species. But then, more worryingly, there's a group of species, and it's seven species in eastern Australia, that are on an ongoing trajectory of decline. Mm. And this is often because they occur with in habitats where other frog species that are resistant to the fungus occur. So those resistant species act as disease amplifiers or disease reservoirs, and they increase the risk in these species. Right. So these are things like the bauble frog down in Victoria and the corroboree frogs in New South Wales. And so these species... At an initial stage, we really need urgent captive breeding efforts, and then we can keep working out ways to reintroduce them into the wild so we don't lose these species forever. Let's hope that doesn't occur. Benjamin Shield from the Australian Research Centre for Excellence for Environmental Decisions in the Australian National University, thanks so much for chatting to us today. 
thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Ben. All right, that was Ben Shield. A really interesting. Uh, they do a lot of fascinating work. This Centre for Excellence for Environmental Decisions. I often get Absolutely. some great press releases mm. from them about the various things they're doing, and just the scope is quite broad. I've to got say. to say, it's nice to have a a small silver lining on what's usually such a dark, dark story about the frogs and the chytrid fungus. It's mm. Mm. Devastating. Aussie frogs shaking it off. <laughs> and I think I'm going to try to record frogs rather than trying to see them because they're, they're little buggers, aren't they? But they make such a great noise. And I, I want to collect, uh, I, want to, I want to have on my phone a whistling tree frog. You're a, a radio person. Take out your, your sound yes, recorder. Exactly. <laughs> kind of like I'll crickets. bring it in the studio next yeah. time. You always, you always head towards this. I always find looking for crickets for my kids, you know, and, and you head towards them in the second, you know, when yeah. you're close because they go they quiet. <laughs> You're like, where was it? It just doesn't work. Three. Triple. Ah. You are listening to Three Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo, which is a science show. And uh, we got a, I got a tweet a moment ago. Liv's not here today. She's sleeping in. She had a big party. I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, we did get a, a tweet from uh, It's Nige. I'm not sure what that, who that is. It's Nige. Uh, Nigel. Um, summer solstice, uh, winter solstice, you know, longest night last night. I celebrated with some uh, port, beautiful port. Oh, no, sorry. Excuse me, Europe. Uh, fortified wine. Well, Don't I was up all night. Toes. I thought you could say I sacrificed some. You know, I celebrate with sacrificing a few virgins or something. But <laughs> no, really, it's not very no, scientific. We haven't done though, that since 2002. <laughs> you were. Oh, I, I enjoyed it last night. I was, I was up for long much night? Of last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, indeed. Now in the studio is Ella Finkel, who's the editor of Cosmos Magazine. Welcome back, Ella. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Keeping warm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not much warmer. I have to say, folks, it's, it's slightly cooler in the studio than it is outside. It's the way we like it. It keeps us frosty. Um, now, Ella, <laughs> you were just sporting the new version of Cosmos magazine. It's got a matte cover to it. Yes, like Frankie. Yeah. yeah we were told that we were looking a little bit 70s. bit shiny? A bit shiny. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we went to a flash studio, studio round, and, and they've made us up. And, and it's you, helped. Yeah, it's increased our sales. I'd like to get a matte car mm. so I don't have to wash it that often. Yeah, I don't know. I always feel like those cars look like they've been through a sandblast or something. <laughs> but in a magazine, it looks good. Yeah, either way, it looks good. Thank now, you. Ella, we, we, we got you in today because of um, this very interesting... Uh, article that's in your latest issue of the magazine around electrical stimulation of the brain. And I'm not talking about the 9-volt battery to the tongue, folks. Although if you haven't tried that <laughs> at <Don't>. home, uh, <laughs> do one that's slightly used. <laughs> Don't grab a new new one out of the back. Um, it'll give you a bit of a shock. But uh, there's been this, this a lot of hoo-ha of late around the use of electrical stimulation of the brain. Tell us a little bit about what you've sort of um, uncovered in, in putting this story together. Right, well, actually, looking at you, Shane, with your headphones on, you look a little bit like our cover of the magazine, which shows a young woman with these headsets across her forehead. And actually, these headsets come from an online company which will sell them to you. And she's not listening to uh, music. She's having uh, about two milliamps put across her skull from a nine-volt battery in the belief that this is going to do something to her brain, her brain circuits. Okay. So um, it's known as 
direct current stimulation, okay. transcranial direct current stimulation. So this is uh, something we had a look at for Cosmos magazine. Um, it's uh, it was it has been. Uh, developed in labs over the last decade or so but about five years ago in 2010 it escaped from the labs kind of half-baked and into the do-it-yourself community because there's very little barrier to doing this you can just go into an electrical store and get yourself a nine volt battery and some jumper leads and off you go. Um, Sorry, I was just wondering where do you attach the jumper leads because those things really bite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, why why did this happen? It happened because in 2010 there was this study published. It came out of. Um, uh, an institute in New Mexico, the Mind Research Institute in New Mexico. These researchers are funded by DARPA, the uh, American Defense Research Agency, had been playing, playing, or, uh, doing experiments with this kind of brain stimulation and um, they had tested um, people on a, a training game that's used for Iraqi recruits going mm-hmm. off to the Middle East to train them to recognise hidden snipers and bombs and things like that. So it's, it's a training game. You walk through this Iraqi street and, you know, you have to spot the sniper and so on. And when people were wearing uh, these head, um, these headsets or had been exposed to them for 10, 20 minutes or something like that, their scores on these games doubled. Okay. Twice as good. So that was a very sensational fighting, and it wasn't long before the whole gaming community. Was it the proper test, though? I mean, was there, a, was there a control group where there was no electrical power going through, but they were wearing the headsets, or was it just, you know, they all felt a bit superior because they were wearing these super electrical things and just worked better? You know, was it, was it proper research? It was proper research, as far as mm. one, can, one can tell. The researcher, Vincent Clark, from uh, the Mind Research Institute in New Mexico, he published in you know, what seemed to be a good peer-reviewed okay. journal. Okay. So yep. we're not doubting that you know, he did, he did um, sham controls. And, right, so that's a good experiment if you can do sham controls and you've done it carefully and it's, it's all about where, you know, how you place these electrodes and, and the, the pattern of electricity you supply and so on and so forth. But that is not the end of science, is it? Mm. What else you need is replication. Mm-hmm. So we, we see it over and over again, all sorts of experiments, cold fusion, whatever, that somebody gets an amazing result in the lab, but can it be repeated? And that's where this has come into question. Okay. Mm. So it's interesting. I mean, obviously our brains are very sophisticated, you know, chemical systems with a lot of electrical connections, and there's stuff going on there. I mean, but that being said, um, I mean, my understanding was the skull is quite a, a good insulating material. So does, I mean, do we even know whether this kind of level of current even gets through to the brain? I mean, it seems, you know, this this isn't the sort of stuff used in, you know, or, or that was used in psychotherapy years ago um, and is now used in a more control sense in in that same sort of area. It's mm. not those sorts of currents. I mean, they're extreme. That's right. It's comparison. not like electroconvulsive mm. therapy, nor is it like um, a much more respectable uh, sort of stimulation called magnetic stimulation, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Uh, if you, uh, There's been randomised controlled trials, the gold standard that shows that uh, for depression, for people 
that won't respond to drugs, about 50% of these really, really tough cases will respond to this kind of transcranial mm. magnetic stimulation. But there you're using you know, $50,000 machines and very, very intense magnetic currents yep. to induce the electricity. And there's no doubt there's something happening because the way they um, calibrate the patients is uh, by seeing how much uh, magnetic strength they have to put through to make their thumb twitch. Mm. So Presumably, though, this, this is not being used clinically. So, I mean, you mentioned there's a company selling these things, but there are people who do Reiki, and I wouldn't consider that a clinical practice either. I mean, is this being used clinically in this way? So we're talking about magnetic or the no, direct the, the, current? the direct current. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. So here's the interesting thing. So I, I guess, you know, I wrote this story and I had to come to terms with what I thought was going on and I was very puzzled the whole time because this did not seem like real science to me. Mm-hmm. As you say, how do you even know that any current is getting through when you're using two milliamps across the skull? Yeah. Um, and there seemed to be very little hypothesis when I'd speak to people who've been working with you know, neurons and electrophysiology their whole career, they just sort of scratch their heads and say, we, we really don't get this, we don't understand mm. what's going on. However, and, and, and it's already escaped from the lab and there's a whole do-it-yourself movement and, yeah. you know, just have a Google and you'll see people swearing that it fixes their depression, it helps them concentrate on boring tasks um, and some very respectable studies as well coming. Uh, there's a thousand published studies showing it'll do everything from improve uh, movement in people who've had a stroke uh, to pain, pain relief. However, is this bad science? Yes, mm. it's bad science because people because it's so easy to do these experiments. People are not doing them the same way, so it gets very hard to repeat. It's uh, hard to compare apples and apples. So there is uh, Jared Horvath, who's done a, a PhD, kind of looking at all these studies. Uh, when he takes all these thousand studies and tries to see, well, okay, how many of these people are doing the techniques the same way and finding the same results, he finds he's dealing with very little. Mm. So I guess the end, the end line, the end of the game, because we're running out of time, is are you going to start using this, Ella? <laughs> well, the hesitation is worrying me. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I seriously hope that something comes out of it because it's yep. too good to be true. Uh, and serious scientists are working on this mm. as well. Paul Fitzgerald at Monash and um, sorry, uh, Colleen Liu at the University of New South Wales. These are all, you know, mint, mint, high, you know, high-level scientists who've developed a lot of the other um, techniques. So they believe in this stuff. So, yep. you know, I have, I'm, I kind of don't know what to make of it. So I hope they're right because it would be awfully nice to take home one of these little headsets and improve your memory and concentration and <laughs> IQ and all the above. I need anything, <laughs> anything, nice. anything that can offset the current decline I'm experiencing, I'll go for. But, <laughs> but presumably if this, if this does hold any water, and I have to say, anything that, t- you know, is sold as fixing everything to me usually falls immediately in the bullshit cup because, you know, those sorts of, that, that's sales. It's, it's not science, it's sales. And people will buy this junk thinking it will solve every ailment they have. 
But if there is an element of it that is that is based on some reality, and that can be shown to be an effective therapeutic, especially with um, you know the the myriad of mental health conditions that we see in society, then that that might well certainly warrants looking into um, and might warrant its use. But uh, I suppose, folks, if you're out there and you're about to Google it and buy one, I would think twice and maybe spend your money on some good fruit and veg instead. Now. Yes. Uh, read, the oh, read the magazine. Oh, read the magazine. Yeah, yeah, read, read the, the whole article. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a long article in the, in the current uh, edition of Cosmos magazine, folks, that Ella has penned, uh, worth having a look at. And um, I'm not sure it necessarily tells you yay or nay, but it certainly gives you some of the some of the information that's out there. So you'll have to make your own decision on that one. But it is, um, yeah, I'd probably hold off before you go buying a, you know, or grab yourself a 9-volt and try it on your tongue first. See how that goes. <laughs> Ella, thanks so much for coming in. Good to My see pleasure. you. My pleasure. And uh, good luck with the new matte version of the magazine. Hopefully it'll sell well. Dr. Cromer, you've been reading. Yes, I was, I was spurred on, Shane, by your book review a, couple, oh, yeah. of week, a yeah. couple of weeks back. said, if Shane can do it, I can do it too. Dr. Lauren's been reading that book too. I've been checking up on it because right, so I lent her this book. and It's a, a, um, called A Life of Flight, yeah. the story of Neil Armstrong. But uh, I don't lend my books out. And uh, <laughs> Dr. Lauren managed to get a book off me, which is very rare because, uh, you know, I like to keep my books pristine. And, and, um, <laughs> anyway, she's, no, she's, wearing, she's wearing gloves. I asked her to wear gloves. And she it, and she's being very well behaved. So. Um, okay. Well, I wrote off to the publishers. In fact, I wrote off to Tim Spector himself and asked for a couple of review copies, and I got in the post within a week. Two <laughs> copies. That's pretty so, good. Uh, it, good work. Um, so, yeah, it's called The Diet Myth uh, and subtitled The Real Science Behind What We Eat. So Tim Spector is a research scientist. He studies twins and he studies why we get sick and why we get chronic diseases. So he's, he's an accomplished author and, and researcher. Recently he's got into microbiome, you know, the uh, good and bad bugs. Um, this, uh, first of all, I have to say I, I like this book. In fact, I love this book for, for a number of reasons. Um, he has always injects a little, just the right, the right amount of, of humor in his books. Sometimes, okay, it's a bit, a bit of lad humor. Um, but, and he, he puts these amazing little anecdotes in and he tells stories. I like people who tell stories. Stories of scientists who actually experimented on themselves. You know, they, they've, <laughs> they've collected their own poo samples for months on end. And Tim Spector himself, throughout the book, he's, he's trying to find the perfect diet. And he's kind of, by the end of the book, defines what he thinks is the perfect diet. And he, he splits the book into chapters. Each chapter is a different, like, food group, like carbohydrates, etc., uh, fats, etc., and dispel, dispels some of the myths that some of them we know and some of them we don't know. I mean, he talks about, the, first of all, he, throughout the book, he talks about the importance of our bugs and how just about mm. everything we eat influences the bugs bugs uh, one little uh, fact for me bugs produce vitamins vitamin b12 if you don't have it in your diet you've got the right combination of bugs they will feed you so you feed them and they feed you all the interesting stuff so he talks about the 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 myths that most fats are, uh, are, are are bad for us, so most fats are, are, are good for us in moderation. Uh, he loves the evidences in favour of extra virgin olive oil, including uh, cooking with it, the best fat to eat and to cook with. Uh, he talks That's about, good because I go through a buckle of the yeah, stuff. How vinegar's good for you um, and how it's basically it's a bug feeder. He, he talks about feeding the garden that is your bugs. He's very, he uses... Uh, the, 
these great metaphors. Uh, he also says that we know nuts, grains, coffee and chocolate are all good for us. Snacking every now and again on, on, on nuts is one of the best things you can do if you're hungry. Um, every vegetable is a superfood. Every single vegetable, the more variety of vegetables and, and fruit you eat, the better. Cut down meat, cut down red meats. These are all most people will be saying uh, into their headsets. Well, we bloody knew this. Well, it, yeah. yes, there is some common sense, but he produces evidence. He talks about the kinds of evidence, and he talks about the fallibility of scientists. We were wrong on these things. He's mm-hmm. happy to admit that, and that's what science, I think, is all about, saying what's the balance of evidence? Wait, hearing those the accumulated Evidence. Well, it's the evolution of knowledge. It's, I mean, anyone who ever says that science stands still is just simply wrong. I and mean, science evolves yeah. as evidence comes in and theory shifts. But yeah. does he take account of the differences in, I guess, just natural uh, variation in where people live? I mean, take, for example, people living in Alaska. I mean, fruit and vegetables are great, but, you know, is it realistic to, yeah. to think that there is no healthy diet there without those elements? I mean, you know... The, or, you know. it, I think that it, it is even, um, I mean, he talks about the Amish, for example, uh, and just coincidence, I was reading about them. They have this super healthy lifestyle. They, for, I was at a petting zoo yesterday. I was petting a bit extra harder. This, it's, there's a long story, <laughs> but it was at a, far, a farmer's market. <laughs> women who, pregnant women who visit farms, even just one visit, their children are less likely to have allergies. So mm. we need more contact with furry pets, number one. Yep. Furry pets increase our health. Secondly, uh, farm animals. And it's all, again, about picking up these bugs. Let your kids roll around in the dirt but also beware of broad spectrum antibiotics they're knocking out the bad Absolutely. with a good mm, mm. Uh, Sixty thousand tons of antibiotics produced annually a little a, a great anecdote about c-sections when a baby comes out the natural way um, then it gets coated in good bugs. When it comes out uh, as a Caesar, it get the bugs it gets are of the people that handle the baby in the room, right. not from the mother. And some people are taking this into their own hands by Swabbing. wiping uh, by a swab <laughs> uh, in the woman's vagina and rubbing that onto the newborn. And, and a scientist colleague of, of Tim Spector's is, is doing that with his baby. Of course, mm. it's, an, it's a one-off, and a lot of this is research in progress. Title of the book? Title is The Diet Myth the by Diet Tim Spector. There you go, folks. Uh, definitely worth a look. Dr. Kramer, thank you very much for coming in. Pleasure. Good to see you. Dr. Diani, get some sleep. I'll, I'll try. I'll try. try. I'll talk to my daughter about that. <laughs> Negotiation. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein the Go-Go. This has been a podcast uh, from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly uh, independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.